Welcome to episode 12 of The Abnormal Psychologist. I'm your host, Dr. Colby Taylor, and this is our dozenth episode. I want to kick off this episode by saying thank you to everybody that's listening. Uh, This episode should push The Abnormal Psychologist over the 1,000 listener mark. Uh, I'm very grateful to you all, and hopefully you're finding these episodes entertaining and educational. Uh, We have listeners in 13 countries, uh, the United States, the Philippines, the Netherlands, France, Germany, Australia, India, Canada, Malaysia, Turkey, Colombia, Thailand, and Spain. If there are any topics you want me to cover, or if you have any suggestions, uh, I'm always open to feedback. Just email me at ctaylo41 at cbu.edu. So, today's episode is going to cover PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. In the DSM-5, PTSD is a member of the trauma and stressor-related disorders family. This is a smaller family with its members being PTSD, reactive attachment disorder, disinhibited social engagement disorder, acute stress disorder, and adjustment disorders. I guess I'll briefly talk about all of the other members of the family before talking about PTSD. So reactive attachment disorder has its roots in psychoanalysis uh, and psychodynamic theory through attachment theory and the work of John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. This is a childhood disorder and specifically a disorder in early childhood. The DSM actually cautions in making diagnoses in children over the age of five. Reactive attachment disorder is due to insufficient care from parents or others, whether it be neglect, deprivation, or uh, like frequent changes in primary caregivers. Due to this instability in care, uh, children rarely seek comfort when they're distressed, and if somebody else offers them comfort, they often don't respond. Uh, These children can be irritable or sad, or they can become really anxious in relatively non-threatening situations. Um, I've seen a few cases of this that were mistaken for autism spectrum disorder because the child was so withdrawn. Disinhibited social engagement disorder used to be part of the reactive attachment disorder diagnosis. It was sort of a subtype, Uh, but now disinhibited social engagement disorder is a standalone diagnosis. Uh, Just like reactive attachment disorder, there has to be extreme insufficient care. But instead of manifesting in withdrawal, as with reactive attachment disorder, uh, with disinhibited uh, social engagement disorder, the child becomes overly familiar with people and even strangers. In one case study, uh, a little girl would sit in strangers' laps at a bus stop and would wander around with strangers in the grocery store. Uh, She had a history of neglect, and this is obviously dangerous. Uh, This can also result in precocious sexual activity at a young age. It's sort of a very diffuse attachment, uh, if you're familiar with terms from attachment theory. Another member of this family is acute stress disorder. Acute stress disorder is a short-term response to trauma from three days to a month long. The trauma has to involve exposure to death or the threat of death, serious injury, or sexual violation. And the short-term response is accompanied by a combination of intrusive symptoms which we'll talk about a little more with PTSD, negative mood, possibly dissociative symptoms, avoidance symptoms, and arousal symptoms. If the response lasts longer than a month, we start to look at PTSD. 
And about a half of pe half of people uh, with PTSD will present with acute stress disorder first. Adjustment disorder isn't going to necessarily be in response to threatened death, violence, or rape. Um, it's usually a lower level trauma. And it's distress within three months of a stressor that causes marked impairment. It can present with depression and anxiety and can be precipitated by things like life changes, like divorce or romantic breakups or experiencing financial crisis or even leaving your parents' home to move to college. The DSM also says that, quote, severe stress reactions to life-threatening illnesses that may include some acute stress disorder symptoms may be more appropriately described as adjustment disorder. So I'm curious if this is where distress after experiencing COVID-19 firsthand would fit. Uh, though in recent articles, I'm seeing scholars describe it as COVID-related PTSD, though I'm not exactly sure if the PTSD label fits. So let's talk about PTSD and I'll let you be the judge. PTSD involves eight diagnostic criteria that are denoted by different letters of the alphabet. So the first criteria is going to be criteria A, which is exposure to a stressor. In this case, the stressor criteria is the exact same as that for acute stress disorder. It's exposure to or threat of death, serious injury, or sexual violence. If it's death of a family member that you're exposed to, it's not grandma dying in her sleep. This is uh, a violent or accidental death. Criteria A also includes first responders who directly experience the aftermath of a traumatic event. EMTs, police officers, and emergency room physicians would fit here. And with COVID, we're having increased emphasis on caring for the caregivers. In one of my recent continuing education seminars, we had a brief talk about um, the mental health active responders team that's here in Tennessee, which allows mental health professionals to volunteer on a hotline. And this is especially being extended to medical professionals treating COVID. And this might be especially important in Tennessee, as I read an article this morning reporting that Tennessee has the highest levels of post-COVID-19 depression. Okay, so criteria A is a stressor. The DSM specifically says that a stressor through electronic media does not count unless it's work-related. And I don't know why work-related would matter. Uh, I don't know if I agree with this one. Uh, many people experience PTSD-like symptoms after watching the events of September 11th unfold on live television. And I've also seen children who have been exposed to pretty messed up videos online, like beheading videos and such, who have experienced like uh, really PTSD-similar-ish um, long-term effects. In graduate school, I had a professor who said that you can't be expected to treat PTSD if you haven't experienced a traumatic stressor yourself. This is sort of the wounded healer hypothesis of Carl Jung, who I just talked about in my other podcast, uh, the personality podcast. Uh, according to the wounded healer hypothesis, a therapist needs to have personal experience with or a predisposition towards the conditions she treats. I'm not sure if I'd necessarily buy this, and I don't know that there's much empirical support behind it. You see this argument a lot in the Veterans Administration, the VA. Uh, many combat veterans believe that it would be optimal for their therapists to also be combat veterans. But anyways, the professor in graduate school I had, uh, she had us watch to experience trauma, scenes from a documentary called Faces of Death. 
and also a graphic video of a suicide. So yeah. Uh, side note, also with the wounded healer hypothesis, I know a lot of students who want to write about their mental health experiences and list their diagnoses and their personal statements for graduate school to psych and counseling programs. I'm sort of neutral to this idea, but I'll warn you that there are many faculty out there who really find this a turnoff. Anyways, criteria B is intrusive symptoms. These are symptoms you can't get out of your head, even if you try, whether they be thoughts about the event, uh, or more commonly dreams, or dissociative events, or flashbacks that involve trauma-related stimuli. These intrusive symptoms are uncomfortable and can produce intense physiological and psychological reactions. Criteria C is avoiding avoidance of uh, trauma-related stimuli. As I mentioned just a second ago in criteria B, exposure to these stimuli is uncomfortable. You might try to not think about the event or to avoid people or places associated with an event. So if like you were in a car accident with a friend, you might avoid hanging out with that friend or you might avoid driving on the road where the car accident occurred. You might remember the song that was on the radio when you were in the car accident, and the song invokes strong feelings and an intense reaction, so you change it whenever it comes on the radio. Criteria D involves negative thoughts and moods. This could be loss of memory related to the traumatic event, uh, negative beliefs about yourself or the world, distorted blaming of yourself or others, uh, inappropriate guilt, Persistent trauma-related emotions, uh, constricted emotion, feelings of alienation, and diminished interest in pre-trauma activities. Criteria E is changes in arousal and reactivity. This could be irritability, aggression, self-destruction, recklessness, hypervigilance, exaggerated startle response, difficulty concentrating, or sleep disturbance. Criteria F is the duration. Symptoms have to last for at least a month. Criteria G is that uh, it must have significant impairment socially or occupationally. And criteria H is that it's not due to uh, medication or an illness. We do have some specifiers too. We have with dissociative symptoms, and I'll talk about dissociative disorders in an upcoming episode. And we have with delayed expression where you don't meet diagnostic criteria for over six months after the traumatic event. I've seen some research indicating that the delayed onset type um, on average has a worse prognosis and is more difficult to treat than immediate onset PTSD. There are going to be slightly different criteria for PTSD in children. And speaking of PTSD in children, there was one proposed disorder that was championed by psychiatrist Bessel van der Kolk that didn't make the cut for the DSM-5, and that's Developmental Trauma Disorder, DTD. Uh, and we know that many children are exposed to traumatic events, and DTD proposes that many behavioral difficulties we see in children actually stem from trauma and neglect, and that we should be treating this trauma and neglect rather than focusing on the symptoms of disruptive behaviors. There is evidence that many adolescents that are incarcerated as juveniles have experienced traumatic events. You might also hear the term complex trauma mentioned. We've traditionally thought of PTSD as a sort of one and done disorder. You're exposed to a catastrophic event and then you have lingering traumatic response. 
But lately, research has focused on more insidious, on more chronic trauma. Uh, being in a long-term abusive relationship, being neglected as a child, growing up in a neighborhood where there is continuous violence. These can all constitute complex trauma. Another term you might hear is adverse childhood events or ACEs. ACEs are sort of becoming all the rage in uh, uh, developmental psychology literature. And my wife's study is looking at uh, ACEs. Um, in the brain, uh, we have the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. In grad school, we called it the HPTA axis, but now I see it called the HPA axis more uh, for hypothalamus pituitary and adrenal. Uh, anyways, the HPA axis is responsible for stress response. And the main hormone you'll hear talked about with stress response is cortisol. And cortisol is a steroid, right? Our body releases steroids in response to injury or stress. So we can measure cortisol through saliva. My wife's study does buckle swabs um, or even through finger and toenail clippings. Uh, high levels of cortisol indicate high levels of stress, right? College students may high, have high levels of cortisol during exam week. But what's interesting is that low levels of cortisol can also indicate high levels of chronic stress. We call this a blunted cortisol response. And we see it a lot with PTSD. In this case, your body becomes so inured to stress that it doesn't even bother to produce a spike in cortisol. It's like it, it can't even anymore. And this is really unhealthy and can lead to cardiovascular and other chronic health problems. Remember, in one of our first episodes, we talked about the stress diathesis model of abnormality, where psychopathologies consist of a stressor and some sort of underlying vulnerability known as a diathesis. So obviously, with PTSD, we need to have a stressor. That was criteria A for PTSD. We also know that trauma alone isn't sufficient to produce PTSD. Many people are exposed to very traumatic events, and many people, even most people, don't get PTSD. More than half of Americans will experience a traumatic event in their lifetime, but only 7.8% of them will meet diagnostic criteria for PTSD. There's a vulnerability, a diathesis component to PTSD. Part of this vulnerability is genetic. There appears to be moderate heritability for PTSD, particularly if someone has parents who have an anxiety disorder. Uh, this is that pleiotropy we were talking about in the last episode. You may have the genes for anxiety, but they can manifest as PTSD or as bipolar disorder, as we talked about in the last episode. It's not a direct one-to-one -one correspondence. Anxiety doesn't necessarily beget factor for many other psychopathologies. Uh, a few prevalent statistics about PTSD. Because of its association with combat veterans, many people erroneously assume it's more prevalent in males. PTSD is actually more prevalent in females. It's also more prevalent in minority groups. Uh, trauma experienced early in life also tends to develop into PTSD more than trauma experienced later in life. Among veterans, rates of PTSD could be as high as 1 in 5 in recent years and 1 in 3 in Vietnam. PTSD has gone by a lot of different terms among veterans in the last 200 years. In the American Civil War, it was known as Soldier's Heart, when physician Jacob Mendez de Costa noticed that combat veterans were experiencing anxiety, melancholy, and heart palpitations. I wrote a, um, a paper about uh, Soldier's Heart in graduate school. There was also a spike in suicide among Civil War veterans after the war. Uh, interestingly, though, 
The preferred method was poison rather than with a firearm, as one might think. In World War I, PTSD was known as shell shock and gas hysteria. And in World War II, it was known as combat stress reaction. We think Vietnam might have higher rates of PTSD for a few reasons. One is that many casualties came from ambush. Surprise seems to be a factor in contracting PTSD. When we know something catastrophic is about to happen, it sucks, but our body has like a stress immune system that braces us for the shock to an extent. When something comes out of the blue, it's an absolute punch in the gut. Uh, many Civil War veterans uh, said that they often thought about getting shot and could prepare themselves to some degree for getting shot, but they were not prepared for the fires that would come from ammunition that would burn wounded men to death. The enduring memory of the flames and the screams, even though it was a very, very small uh, proportion of casualties compared to those who were shot, uh, stood out. And in World War II, soldiers crossing bridges while liberating Germany would say that their comrades who fell off of bridge trestles and drowned with their gear on stood out to them more than those who were shot. Also with Vietnam, uh, returning soldiers were asked to reintegrate to society more quickly. Those called upon to reintegrate quickly and to return to normal life were more likely later to have diagnoses of PTSD. Uh, the VA, the Veterans Administration, uh, has the National Center for PTSD, and there are a lot of online resources at ptsd.va.gov. All right, so let's switch gears and talk about treating PTSD a bit. In cognitive behavioral therapy, we have a technique used with PTSD called cognitive processing therapy, uh, abbreviated CPT. The first part of cognitive processing therapy involves psychoeducation, learning about PTSD and why you might get stuck at certain points in treatment. You then begin reprocessing the trauma, usually through exposure techniques. Usually this is imaginal, uh, in vitro exposure. You go through thought exposure and experience many of the uncomfortable thoughts and emotions you've been avoiding. In one case study I had in graduate school, there was an Iraq war veteran who had been part of a convoy of Humvees that was ambushed. One of the triggers of re-experiencing this ambush came when the person smelled gasoline as the Humvees had been uh, leaking gasoline during the ambush. So as part of the therapy, the exposure involved narrating the attack to the therapist with a can of gasoline emitting fumes in the therapy room. Uh, the exposure can also be in vitro, which is in real life, though this is harder with traumatic events than with anxiety. You might revisit the scene of a car accident you were in or listen to that song that was playing on the radio when you were in the wreck. Another popular treatment for PTSD is EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Uh, in EMDR, a visual stimulus, whether it be the therapist's finger or a light, is placed in the peripheral vision of the patient while the patient discusses and processes and then reprocesses the traumatic event. Again, this is really popular, and I have known clinicians who have paid thousands of dollars to become EMDR trained, and I've also known clients who swear that it works. However, effectiveness research isn't as optimistic. The therapeutic benefits of EMDR have been found to come solely from the reprocessing and exposure pieces of the therapy, and not from the eye movement part. Anyways, that's it for this episode. 
I have a mailbag request to do an episode on psychedelics. So I'll start prepping to create an episode on those. And no, the prepping won't involve use of psychedelics. Um, keep sending requests and questions to ctaylo41 at cvu.edu. And until the next episode, take care and stay well.